This is a crawdad song. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Bing, boo. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Crawdad man done past your gate. Welcome to Crawdads and Taters, Red State Rebels. We are writers, activists, and leftists who come from two of the reddest states in the country, Oklahoma and Idaho. When we say red, we may be referring to the indigenous, socialist, and labor histories of these states, or the right-wing fanaticism that they're known for today. As rebels, we use a leftist lens to analyze current events, political issues, and revolutionary movements that support our collective survival. So so my crawl, that's three, four, dime. Your crawl, that's not as fat as mine. Our last episode was the first part of a two-part discussion on critical race theory. In part one, we discussed what critical race theory is, who's behind the war on critical race theory, who's profiting from it, and how U.S. public education is again being endangered by white supremacist authoritarian movements to whitewash history. We also discussed how this white lash fits into a broader U.S. political terrain where the Republican Party is constantly shifting further and further towards fascism in order to seize and maintain U.S. political power. The analysis in our last episode represents our anti-fascist lens, which is one of two lenses crawdads and taters have developed to look at current political events. Today, we want to continue this discussion on critical race theory from a different perspective, in line with our anti-Brunchen lens. As a reminder to those who aren't familiar with this terminology, anti-Brunchen is our code name for how leftist movements are often defanged and co-opted by neoliberalism, eliminating any radical potential for class-based revolution. So today we're going to be talking specifically about how neoliberalism has co-opted CRT and perhaps robbed it of its deeper potential for creating revolutionary class solidarity. But before we jump in, I just wanted to let everyone know that we have created a Patreon page because with every episode, we put in a ton of hours and research. And if you value this kind of non-corporate leftist analysis, we would really appreciate your support at patreon.com slash crawdads and taters. Now on with the show. I think the best place to start with this segment is a quick review of how critical race theory first emerged in the 1970s and 80s and what has changed since then. I don't think many of us on the left really have a solid grasp on how critical race theory has evolved and morphed since it was first introduced as a legal framework many decades ago. You and I have spent considerable time recently educating ourselves on this. To set up this first clip, we have to remember that the right-wing smear campaign operative, Chris Rufo, as well as the right-wing in general, has tried to paint critical race theory as a Marxist plot in order to delegitimize and weaponize it. So this is Vivek Chibber, professor of sociology at New York University. He is the editor of Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, and also an author for Jacobin Magazine. He speaks to this question of critical race theory's basis in Marxism. But Vivek, is <laughs> yeah. critical race theory a Marxist plot? <laughs> uh, no, of course not. Um, there's, there's nothing Marxist about it. We have to separate out certain strands here. Um, Critical race theory, you know, is something that came out of the academy. Um, I, it's usually dated in the late 80s. People think of 1989, this conference in Wisconsin as its founding moment. 
Um, and it was really connected up with other trends in academia at the time. The immediate uh, sort of um, the parental theory was critical legal studies. Um, and it was uh, that right at the time that intersectionality theory was being um, uh, promulgated and promoted. It comes out of a trend within academia where erstwhile radicals were trying to grapple with the uh, how you understand racial and gender and uh, sexual oppression. Um, and initially, when it came up, it was taken for granted that there's an economic foundation to all this, that there's a material foundation to all this. So I would say that, you know, in its very early versions, there was a strong Marxist influence in this stuff because there was a strong Marxist influence on all strands of radical theory at that time. Um, so there was this idea that race is fundamentally about power, yeah, which is right, that race is not deeply biological, that biological markers that individuals carry with them are fastened upon as having some kind of social significance, and that's a process of social construction. That's also true. And so it works with these tropes, as it were, um, and in so doing, seems to be bringing race and the understanding of race into a materialist framework to enrich that framework. And I, I, you know, there's an extent to which I think that's true. So one can't, at a certain level, um, I think, validate the accusation that this is a Marxist plot for the very early iteration of this. But keep the date in mind. We're talking about the late 80s. And the late 80s is the mom moment where radical thought enters its most profound degeneration that we've seen in the history of the modern left. Uh, I would date it a little bit earlier, but that's when it really starts to take off. So not surprisingly, by the time you get to the early 2000s, critical race theory has morphed into something quite different from its original starting point. It is now much more firmly embracing the milieu of uh, intersectionality and what was called multiple oppressions theory, for whom the centrality or the foundational importance of economic inequality to the perpetuation of racial and gender injustice is no longer accepted. In fact, it's taken as a sign of intellectual weakness and even a kind of political conservatism. So by, you know, I would say the early 2000s, in all of these intellectual strands, intersectional theory, intersectionality theory, critical race studies and all that, you get on the one hand, a nod to power and an affirmation of the social construction of these categories, but the social construction now is put on steroids and it becomes an artifact of discourse and ideology and affect and these sorts of things. And now, the cultural attitudinal components of race and racism become on par, are placed on par with the economic foundations of racial oppression. And this is why today you get from race theory and racial, uh, the race experts, this notion that systemic racism is actually, when they interpret systemic racism, they mean racism is everywhere and what keeps it everywhere is not the economic foundations on which it rests, but rather the attitudes which continue to reproduce it. And that's why the key to racism is sensitivity training, seminars and this sort of stuff, more research as you guys were talking about, 
and this notion that it's in the air and it's everywhere and it rests in the, the most subtle gesture, in the tiniest inflection, in language. And all of this, by this time, by the 2000s, becomes a very different kettle of fish than the early foundations of it. Wow. He really lays out a comprehensive timeline here for how critical race theory has evolved. How I interpret what Vivek Chibber is basically saying here is that critical race theory has been subjected to the same neoliberal commodification as every other social movement in our society. You know, the process where the economic and structural roots of a social movement are ripped out of it, and what we are left with is a kind of more shallow but easy to sell commodified version of identity politics that focuses on individual behaviors, attitudes, nuances, microaggressions, but really no longer has a class analysis that tackles the larger structural roots of racism and white supremacy. Would you agree with this, Taters? Yes, I think that Vivek gives a very good summary here. I've been reading a lot on CRT recently, and in much of what I've read, there is no real connection to economics, like Vivek was pointing out. And this isn't just Vivek who is talking about this. In fact, Richard Delgado, one of the founders of CRT, wrote in Critical Race Theory and Introduction, quote, critical race theory has yet to develop a comprehensive theory of class, end quote. This was in 2017, and CRT was officially founded in 1989 and was being developed you know, well before then. So in over 30 years, class analysis has really not been centered in critical race theory. That's interesting. Can you give any examples of this from mainstream anti-racist resources that people might already be familiar with? Yeah, I really think a good example of this can be found in the work of Ibram X. Kendi. While he might not truly be a critical race theorist by the original legal definition, he has been heavily influenced by critical race theory. Kendi is the author of the best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. I read it a while ago, and it keeps coming up in articles on critical race theory. Kendi was specifically quoted by the Biden administration's Department of Education's proposed priorities for American history and civics education. Here's the quote they used, quote, an anti-racist idea is any idea that suggests the racial groups are equals in all their apparent differences, that there is nothing right or wrong with any racial group. Anti-racist ideas argue that racist policies are the cause of racial inequities, end quote. I think this is a good step forward for the administration to acknowledge that racist policies are a problem, but they have yet to do anything substantive about it. To get back to uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Kindy, it's a fairly short book and it consists of 18 chapters, which cover the various ways that we can be anti-racist. These topics range from power to biology to ethnicity, gender, and sexuality. So basically what you're saying is that each chapter in Kendi's book represents a different political identity and its relationship to racism so that all the chapters combined sort of create a map of the many intersectional dimensions of structural racism in U.S. society? Yes, that's what it's attempting to do. Now, when I first read it, I wasn't really aware of critical race theory. And now that I know what CRT is, I think Kendi subscribes to most of the basic tenets, the tenets that we covered in the last episode, even though he's not a legal scholar like the early critical race theorists were. Got it. That makes sense. Okay, well, let's just hear it from Kendi in his own words. So I've certainly been inspired by, by critical race theory and critical race theorists. Uh, the way in which I've formulated definitions of 
of racism and racist and anti-racism and anti-racist have not only based, been based on historical sort of evidence, but also Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectional theory, which is she's a, one of the founding and pioneering critical race theorists who, who in the late 1980s and early 1990s said, you know what, Black women aren't just facing racism. They're not just facing sexism. They're facing the intersection of racism and sexism. And it's important for us to understand that. And I, that's foundational to, to my work. It's interesting that when Kendi talks about intersectionality here, he talks about race and sex, but not class. Since I have a sociology degree, I can tell you that race, class, and gender are the three pillars of how we analyze any kind of social inequality in the United States. This theoretical framework is basic to any analysis of social inequality in the field of sociology. And so I just find it curious that he only mentions race and gender here and not class. Yes, exactly. Now, there actually is a chapter on class in the book, and that's kind of what I want to focus on here. Um, this chapter basically illustrates you know, the dangers of critical race theory not having a comprehensive theory of class. He says, in order to be anti-racist, we must be anti-capitalist. Right. So it appears he's going to present a class analysis alongside all these other intersectionalities. Yeah, and there's really a lot of good stuff in this chapter. You know, he starts off talking about being anti-capitalist, and then he goes on to talk of the conjoined twins of racism and capitalism. Wow, the conjoined twins. That, that conjures up for me, like, Martin Luther King's kind of triplets of evil when he talked about racism, materialism, and militarism. Yeah, and then that's really great. I'm glad Kendi brings this up. But then the chapter kind of goes off the rails. He attacks socialism and communism because they do not fit his definitions of being anti-racist. And then he holds up Elizabeth Warren as an example of someone who, quote, should be applauded for her efforts to establish and enforce rules that end the theft and level the playing field for, hopefully, all race classes, not just the white middle class, end quote. <laughs> he goes on to say to love capitalism is to end up loving racism. That's so interesting. So like on the one hand, it sounds like he sees capitalism and racism as inextricable, but that's kind of odd language. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to read because he goes on to like twist himself into knots defending Elizabeth Warren, who in her own words has called herself a quote, capitalist to her bones. <laughs> and he tries to claim that her heavily regulated capitalism isn't really capitalism. Whoa, that sounds really complicated. And how could anyone think that Elizabeth Warren is anti-capitalist? I know we sure don't think she is. <laughs> Here's a clip of Senator Warren being interviewed by CNBC. You don't think capitalists are bad people? I'm a capitalist. Come on. I believe in markets. What I don't believe in is theft. What I don't believe in is cheating. That's where the difference is. I love what markets can do. I love what functioning economies can do. They are what make us rich. They are what create opportunity, but only fair markets. Markets with rules. Markets without rules is about the rich take it all. It's about the powerful get all of it. Wow, she really loves markets, especially <laughs> ones that make us rich. 
I mean, <laughs> this is hilarious. I love this clip. It's like people think Elizabeth Warren is like such a leftist, like liberals think she's such a leftist and here she is just like praising the free market. Why on earth would you hold up Elizabeth Warren as a beacon of anti-capitalism when there are so many other clearly anti-racist, anti-capitalist thought leaders throughout US history to the present from W.E.B. Du Bois to the Black Panthers to modern abolitionists like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, Mark Lamont Hill, Kianga Yamada Taylor. I mean, all of these folks who are all people of color, by the way, have an excellent analysis of racism, capitalism, and racial capitalism. So why on earth would Elizabeth Warren become Kendi's spokesperson on this issue? I have no idea. And Warren was possibly the worst choice ever for being the anti-capitalist, anti-racist <laughs> spokesperson. Why? You mean you doubt her sincerity on race issues? Like just because she pretended to be Cherokee and submitted recipe to Pow Wow Chow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and don't forget she was the first woman of color to teach at Harvard. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. Well, maybe it's just her class solidarity that you have issues with taters, you know? I mean, just because she took super PAC money during the 2020 presidential primary campaign after she promised not to, and then refused to back Bernie's campaign, which by the way, was the most class-based presidential campaign in modern history, even after it was crystal clear that she was losing the primary. Yeah, Crawdads, I really don't understand this choice. You know, she was calling Bernie sexist the entire time through the campaign, trying to gain her way back up in the polls. She was smearing Bernie, dividing the progressive left, and made sure Bernie didn't win the nomination while she herself was vying for a seat on the Biden cabinet. Right, exactly. Vying for a seat on the Biden cabinet. And that's that tells us everything we need to know about her rapidly changing position on economics. <sighs> well, and you know how perfect that she was using one of her political identities, i.e. being female, to weaponize that. I mean, she weaponized her political identity in order to tear down the most class-based campaign in modern U.S. history. And that's actually exactly what we're talking about here when social movements lose their class analysis and become about competing political identities instead of being collective revolutionary struggles. But anyway, I digress. Back to Kendi. Why on earth would he uphold Elizabeth Warren as a shining example of how to be an anti-capitalist, anti-racist? Once again, yeah, I really have no <laughs> idea. It, it seems like he hasn't actually accepted what being an anti-capitalist means. Mm -hmm since he's trying to redefine it to include Elizabeth Warren and her <laughs> ideas of regulated free market capitalism. Mm -hmm. yep. Since you brought up Du Bois and you know, other people that Kendi could have pointed to, I do mm -hmm. want to mention that you know, Kendi does quote W.B. Du Bois in his book saying, quote, it is white labor that deprives the Negro of his right to vote, denies him education, denies him affiliation with trade unions, expels him from decent houses and neighborhoods and heaps upon him the public insults of open color discrimination, end quote. And this is great. This is a good Du Bois quote. I agree with everything that Du Bois is saying, but then, you know, Kendi goes on to ignore the rest of Du Bois's class analysis. Interesting. 
So he actually quotes this part of Du Bois analysis, but how would you summarize Du Bois class analysis, Taters? Yeah, so I haven't read as much of Du Bois as I'd like to read, but I do know that you know, throughout his career, he came to the conclusion that capitalism is not a reformable system. Mm -hmm. you know, du Bois had a very good understanding of Marx. Um, in Black Marxism, Cedric Robinson actually writes that he considered Du Bois to be one of the top Marxists of the time. Mm -hmm. now, in his art article, Marxism and the Negro Problem, Du Bois explains how race is used to divide the working class, which is you know, something that Marx often talked about. Right. You know, in this chapter on class, Kendi specifically excludes socialists and communists from being anti-racists. Well, Du Bois came to the conclusion that, and I quote, in the end, communism will triumph. I want to help bring that day, end quote. Now, du Bois was super clear on what he wanted, but Kendi is very unclear when he writes about class. He goes so far as to say, quote, Martin Luther King Jr. and a generation of elite black youngsters from the black bourgeoisie began the epic struggle for civil rights, economic justice, and desegregation, end quote. What? What? Elite youngsters from the black bourgeoisie began the civil rights movement? What the F is he talking about? I mean, anybody with an elementary understanding of the civil rights movements in the United States has seen the photos of the massive marches from Selma to Montgomery, the police crackdowns, the segregation photos, the lunch counter sit-ins, the fire hoses, the dog attacks, the imprisonments, and of course, <laughs> MLK's last big organizing push, the sanitation workers, i.e. garbage men. This was not the black bourgeoisie leading this struggle. Why on earth would he say that? Once again, I don't have an insight into Kendi's <laughs> thinking. <laughs> like, I really don't want to speculate that it's definitely not, you know, the correct picture of the struggle that Martin Luther King was leading. He wasn't leading the black bourgeoisie, the elite black youngsters. You know, That's insane. Maybe Kenty can come on our podcast and explain it himself. Oh my God. I'm sorry. I mean, I have all kinds of respect for Kendi and the work he's done and the difference that he's made in, you know, in our culture around anti-racist struggle. I absolutely do. But this seems like kind of a fundamental problem for the anti-racist left to use Kendi as the main spokesperson or czar of the anti-racist movement if he's not willing to be any more radical on class issues than Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and sadly, like, I think this is exactly what Vivek Chipper is talking about when he talks about how critical race theory has been stripped of its economic roots. Let's listen to the second part of Vivek's clip here. He's still talking about the evolution, or maybe I should say the de-evolution of critical race theory. But I would say the last two years, it takes on a different cast altogether. It starts out with this slogan of anti-essentialism. But by now, I would argue, it's a profoundly essentialist doctrine, but around race, not around class or economics. And that's what this 1619 project in the New York Times, I mean, if you look at the 1619 project, there's, what Trump's interpretation is not outlandish. It sees race as what it called the original sin. It sees racism as inhering in white culture. It doesn't explain where it comes from. It's just there. And race is what pr produces and what generates the inequalities of society, not class. Race is the original sin, the poor category. 
that out of which flows everything else, and it's in everyone. That's what they mean by systemic racism. That's why all of us, us meaning white people, have to unlearn it. Well, I mean, then yeah, you got they got to take over the school. You got to rewrite the textbooks. You got to. Uh, Kendi has to be the czar of anti-racist scholarship. That there's a committee that'll you know that will pronounce on whether or not a textbook or an article is sufficiently anti-racist. That is a profoundly authoritarian trend. It's, there's nothing Marxist about it. Wow, Vivek Chibber's analysis is really interesting and illuminating here. I mean, perhaps he's simplifying things a tad. I read the 1619 Project, for example, and it certainly did have economic components. It certainly addressed poverty as a symptom of racism. But I do get his point that from a modern day critical race theory lens, race is the original sin in this view, and that everything else that is bad comes from racism. And this is inherently different from having a class analysis that understands that race and class were born together. Or as famous abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore has so eloquently put it, quote, capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines it, end quote. So if we're not gonna talk about social inequality or class, and we're only gonna focus on race, then we can't really critique the economic system that marries those two forces together. Yep. And it's ironic because in his chapter on class, Kendi talks about the conjoined twins of racism and capitalism. But then the way he treats class throughout the book, it seems like it's treated as a separate chapter and not an overarching umbrella that encapsulates all these other political struggles. Do you think that's right, Taters? Yes, race is definitely centered in his work rather than class. You know, class is just a subset alongside all these other issues like gender and biology. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a kind of a good explanation of you know, why class isn't centered in critical race theory comes from Richard Delgado. Hmm. Um, he describes, once Wait, again, in this- Richard Delgado is one of the founders, right? Of critical race theory? Yes, yeah, he's one of the original founders. Yeah. Um, in his book, Critical Race Theory and Introduction. Yeah. Describes that there are two camps within the critical race theory. Mm -hmm. He describes these as realist and idealist, though I'd use the term materialist instead of realist. Um, that here's what he writes, quote, one camp, which we may call idealists, holds that racism and discrimination are matters of thinking, mental categorization, attitude, and discourse. Race is a social construction, not a biological reality, they reason. Hence, we may unmake it and deprive it of much of its sting by changing the system of images, words, attitudes, unconscious feelings, scripts, and social teachings, by which we convey to one another that certain people are less intelligent, reliable, hardworking, virtuous, and American than others. And he continues. Okay. For realists or materialists, racism is a means by which society allocates privilege and status. Racial hierarchies determine who gets tangible benefits, including the best jobs, the best schools, and invitations to parties in people's homes. Members of this school of thought point out that anti-Black prejudice sprang up with slavery and capitalist need for labor. Okay, so there you go. That's, that's the class piece, the, the realist section of the theory. But that description isn't terribly well developed. I mean, racial hierarchies determine who gets invited to parties in people's homes. <laughs> well, I suppose so, but 
maybe more aptly, like, shouldn't racial hierarchies determine who goes to prison or whose schools are inundated with police or whose neighborhoods are being poisoned by industrial waste or who's dying of COVID or whose drinking water is safe and whose land is being drilled on for oil pipelines? <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, the Vice President Kamala Harris had a party with all the female senators not too long ago. So uh, this determined that Elizabeth Warren was one of the people who is being invited to a party. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, for the rest of that, yeah, it's primarily it's the working poor, the living proletariat, Black and Indigenous people of color, you know, the people that the capitalist system have ostracized, you know, these are the people who are being incarcerated, they're being shot by the police, they're dying young because of toxic waste in their neighborhoods. You know, it's their land that's being raped and pillaged by the capitalist system. Right. You know, Vivek Chibber in that last quote, he was criticizing, you know, the idealist while agreeing more with the realists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that this split in critical race theory could have been avoided if they had originally developed a comprehensive approach that includes economics and class. Right. The lack of this comprehensive class analysis is what has led to what Vivek describes and what we could call a neoliberal version of critical race theory. Right. And Vivek actually said that critical race theory did include a heavy Marxist influence in the beginning. It was only later on that the Marxist roots were neutered out of it. And that, of course, is what has happened through much of liberal academia in all topics, in all areas, and in the nonprofit world in the United States, you know, all of it lacks a class analysis. And unfortunately, this makes a lot of sense, given that NGOs and nonprofits and academia have to rely heavily on funders for advancing their social agendas. In other words, they have to make their organizational missions palatable to the ruling class who are the only people in a capitalist society who have the money to throw at social problems. But of course, the basic problem with this top-down funding model is that the work of nonprofits, academ academic research, et cetera, you know, it all becomes mainly accountable to elite funding institutions and not to the grassroots movements that they claim to represent. So these foundations often end up co-opting and controlling social movements. And that's why we have this term on the left called the nonprofit industrial complex. That's what that's referring to. Right. And that really makes a lot of sense. You know, if they have to require on the rich for money, the rich aren't going to give them money if they're telling us to eat the rich. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think part of this trend, you know, what we're seeing evolving is that anything but class theorists have taken over much of critical race theory. Mm hmm. You know, this is a common occurrence even among progressives. It's taboo to talk about the real divide in this country between the ruling class and the working class. They're willing right. to talk about the you know, mythical, ill-defined middle class, but it's taboo to really create a distinction between the ownership class and the working class, which is the basis of class exploitation. Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk about class, we have to talk about how class is defined. And Marx defined class as the relationship of a worker to the means of production. Mm -hmm. You know, in the simplest terms, and kind of oversimplifying a little bit here, but you know, there's a class that owns the capitalist, and there's a class that works, the proletariat. Mm -hmm. And these two classes, they have opposing interests, and the result of this is a class struggle. The ownership class exploits the working class for their own profit. And you know, when Kendi or you know, others, when they talk about class, they 
talk about you know, poor people and elites rather than clearly defining you know, capitalists and proletarians. Yeah, that really blurs the class distinction. I mean, it almost just makes it sound like that people just circumstantially happen to be poor or happen to be elite instead of looking at exactly the economic reasons that people are in those positions in the first place. And that's probably exactly why Kindy can get away with using Elizabeth Warren in this <laughs> context. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, pro-capitalist Warren, you know, as if these classes are so fluid and easy to move between. I mean, and now you have Kendi as the race czar for the Biden administration, who has done everything in its power to distance itself from socialism. I mean, remember Biden's primary campaign slogan, quote, I defeated the socialist. I beat the socialist. <laughs> I defeated the socialist Bernie Sanders, <laughs> as if Bernie was actually a socialist, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. So Kendi is now becoming totally institutionalized in the neoliberal establishment. And this also explains why when he talks about intersectionality that he generally doesn't mention class or when he writes about it in his book, it's just one chapter out of 18 and not the umbrella under which all these other multiple oppressions are taking place. Yeah, totally. You know, if we talk about intersectionality, class is a factor across all other identities. Right. No one can escape the impact of our class-based system of capitalism. And if we leave class out, we're left with a very incomplete picture that ignores the elephant in the room, which is the capitalist system. Yep. Michael Parenti, an American political scientist, historian, and author, he's written about this. Mm -hmm. You know, He's written over 23 books, which have been translated into at least 18 languages. And I'm going to play a clip from him speaking on the matter. What happens in America, and it happens on the left too, by, by focusing exclusively on race and gender, we forget that there's also a terrible class divide. And we then overlook how class operates in race and gender problems. Exactly. I mean, he says it so cleanly. Um, I also want to read an excerpt from Parenti's book, Black Shirts and Reds, which really hits home on this topic. Quote, the exigencies of class, power, and exploitation shape the social reality we all live in. Racism and sexism help to create super exploited categories of workers. Minorities and women reinforce the notions of inequality that are so functional for a capitalist system. To embrace a class analysis is not to deny the significance of identity issues, but to see how these are linked both to each other and to the overall structure of politico-economic power. An awareness of class relations deepens our understanding of culture, race, gender, and other such things." End quote. I just love Parenti. That's just so great. I really recommend everyone should read Black Shirts and Reds if they get a chance. You know, he, yeah. he really hits it on the head here, why we can't leave class out of any analysis. Right. And while we're talking about class, we also have to mention the Black radical tradition, which is another thing that was largely ignored in Kendi's book. Um, here's Vivek Chibber again talking about the Black radical tradition. Non-white radicals historically around the, the world in the 20th century. What I've just said, I didn't invent it. I'm simply telling you what every single black or brown radical in the 20th century said until America handed to the world from the 1980s onward this nonsense that if you take up economic demands, you're not serious about race. This is an invention of the American 
post-80s American left. And we are now in the position of having to somehow drag ourselves out of this miasma, this psychological and intellectual malaise that the post-socialist so-called radical intelligentsia has generated, which has made us completely and totally irrelevant to ever doing anything meaningful on this very question of race. Listen, this is a fight. The left today is a left that sees no problem with all of these things that I'm criticizing right now. And it simply comes down to this. If the left is ever going to be relevant outside of these teeny tiny eddies, the professional managerial class, it's going to have to gather up the resolve to stand up and say, this is horseshit. And it's profoundly reactionary. I don't really care anymore. I've been doing this now for 30, 35 years. I'm to the point where I'm just tired of making, having to convince people who call themselves leftists that poverty and inequality is what your focus should be. The fact that you have to say this on the left is astonishing. It just shows that it's not a left anymore. It's something else. They should come up with a different name for themselves. I just don't know what to call it. <laughs> oh my God, I love Vivek's fire here. And he's so right. I mean, US social movements are so marginalized around the world if all of our mainstream anti-racist movements are missing a class analysis. We need to get back to this analysis that was so commonplace in the 1960s. Malcolm X talked about class, MLK talked about class, the Black Panther Party talked about class all the time. And this is exactly what the ruling class fears is working class solidarity. And we talked about this during episode one on the Black Panther Party, but it's really worth repeating. I mean, here's MLK talking about this. Again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves. and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. So there you have MLK talking about the young black bourgeoisie. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, and now here's Fred Hampton, the revolutionary chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. I'm the deputy chairman of the state of Illinois, Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton. And uh, a lot of people don't understand the Black Panther Party's uh, relationship with white mother country radicals. A lot of people don't even understand that word that they're refusing a lot. But what we're saying is that there are white people in the mother country that are for the same type of thing that we are for stimulating revolution in the, in the mother country. And we said that we work with anybody from coalition with anybody that has revolution on their mind. We're not a racist organization because we understand that racism is an excuse used for capitalism. And we know that racism is just, it's, it's a byproduct of capitalism. But wait, is, isn't this class reductionism? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I don't think it would be fair to call one of the most revolutionary black liberation movements in world history class reductionist. But... <laughs> 
ironically, that's exactly what a lot of leftists are accused of today when we try to insert class back into the discussion after it has been systematically stripped out of it for decades. And the problem is that most of our political discussions today are already immersed in a neoliberal political culture that has succeeded in erasing class from the discourse almost entirely. And a classless analysis has become so standard that anytime we bring it up, people actually get uncomfortable. Here's University of California Santa Cruz professor of sociology, William Robinson, speaking on this topic. Again, I'm just going to use these terms where please remember all the time that they mean different things to different people. Um, but the everything that I clump under this term identitarianism, which again is in critical race theory and so forth. Well, um, for, uh, uh, and I wouldn't even know to where to begin to the critique because we need a whole lot of uh, time. But what's entirely absent from all of this, again, is class. Okay. And so whenever you bring up class and capitalism uh, on university campuses, um, and in a lot of these NGOs, although they're better than the university campuses, you hear that, oh, that's class reductionist. And class reductionism is a serious problem. However, in my experience, 19 out of every 20 times that someone says, oh, that's class reductionism, that's simply, it's not, it's not class reductionism. And it's an excuse to ignore and remove class and capital from the discussion. And when you do that, you neuter all these mass movements, or at least your you know, how you claim to lead these uh, mass movements. But there's much more than that. There's much more because, um, um, for instance, critical race theory, the big focus besides the legal dimension in which critical race theory arose, but now it's not that, right? It's focused on uh, interpersonal behavior and microaggressions. And if racism is not this larger structure, which is ultimately how the system exploits and controls a mass of of uh, racialized labor, but rather is uh, interpersonal microaggressions and rather is personal behavior modification. Look, in our right here at the University of California, we have a racial justice uh, initiative across all the campuses. And, um, and um, what's coming out of it is what's the solution here to achieve greater racial justice in the University of California is um, anti-bias training, as if racism is a matter of personal bias that requires personal behavior modification. And me and plenty of my colleagues and some of the radical students are not at all in agreement with that focus, but that's the types of focus that comes uh, out of this. So I guess I'm glad to hear that Fred Hampton isn't a class reductionist. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that uh, Will Robinson yeah, really says it all right here. Yeah. You know, wh why didn't we just point people to the entire Will Robinson <laughs> video? God, <yeah>. right. <laughs> we really need to do this podcast. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've heard from some brilliant minds today, and I feel like we should kind of step back and embody what we've learned here. Um, in the spirit of making this podcast reflect some kind of social class solidarity within itself and not just be another form of leftist intellectual masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to recognize that many people on the right, you know, and this includes many people in my own family, while they may have racist and reactionary tendencies and ideas, which is definitely not okay, it's also important to recognize that the working class in this country do feel alienated and ostracized by a kind of liberal academic elite culture that is part of our class-based education system. It's part of our class-based society. And many, many working class people in the United States are excluded by these liberal institutions and they know it. 
And it's a huge source of resentment, not just on the right, but across the political spectrum. And why wouldn't it be when so many people are structurally, structurally left out of these educational opportunities? Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's, this is something that isn't really talked about a lot, but I think it's important to focus on you know, how the working class is really alienated by the system. Absolutely. And that there's this growing resentment of the lower and working classes, which, you know, is fundamentally characterized by people feeling intimidated and ostracized and looked down upon by elitist institutions because they see them as super politically correct and always telling them how to speak and how to talk about U.S. history and what terminology to use. And it's this same liberal or neoliberal system, and this is key, really, that doesn't ever address the basic economic suffering of the working class, doesn't address their material conditions, doesn't improve their lives on a daily basis, which is part of, not all of, but it's part of why certain sectors on the right end up so resentful and so easily manipulated by white supremacist fascists like Trump. And well, Christopher Ruffo. And Ruffo and Ted Cruz and, you know, the list goes on and on, who will happily give them a scapegoat for their suffering while distracting them, distracting the working class from the actual source of their suffering, which, of course, is capitalism and not black and brown people. Yeah, and the, uh, you know, the Black Panther Party, they knew all about this. That's why they formed the Rainbow Coalitions with the white working class. Right. That's why they were willing to partner with the Young Patriots, you know, the Southern white poor people's movement that wore the Confederate flag on their uniforms. You know, they didn't care because they knew their class solidarity was more powerful. And it's also why it became so dangerous and that it was destroyed by, you know, the FBI and COINTELPRO. Exactly. It was, it had to be. And it's interesting to me that in our culture today, you know, there is a critique of critical race theory from the far right and the anti-capitalist left. And while much of the right wing critique is totally white supremacist and reactionary, I mean, let's be honest, we did a whole segment on how white supremacist and reactionary it was, but it just goes to show that if critical race theory had not been neutered of its class analysis early on, it really makes me wonder if it could have had a much broader audience today. I mean, there could be a place for class-based solidarity within critical race theory if the analysis here were truly about racial capitalism and not just focused on individual attitudes, bias, et cetera. Yeah, and though this critique of capitalism has been largely suppressed inside of critical race theory, the critique is not dead. You know, Vivek Chibber and Bill Robinson aren't the only ones who are talking about it. Mm -hmm. you know, I think Robin D.G. Kelly is one of the modern day practitioners of critical race theory whose voice really needs to be heard. Yes. And I just want to read a quote here from a recent article of his in Boston Review, where he says, quote, exposing whiteness for what it is, a foundational myth for the birth and consolidation of capitalism, is fundamental if we are to build a genuine social movement dedicated to dismantling the oppressive regimes of racism, heteropatriarchy, empire, and class exploitation that is at the root of inequality, precarity, materialism, and violence in many forms. I'm not suggesting we ignore their grievances, but that we help white working people understand the source of their discontent, real and imagined, end quote. That's so beautiful. I just love Robin D.G. Kelly. 
I mean, he's, he has such a firm understanding of racial capitalism and he comes right out of the spirit of Cedric Robinson and black Marxism. He's such a national treasure and I don't feel like that many people really even read him or know about him. Yeah, instead we get Kendi. <laughs> <laughs> and Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> and Elizabeth Warren. Ugh. But yeah, you know, Robin E. G. Kelly here, he presents an analysis that puts race and class side by side. You know, it's not about race or class reduction. It's right. about understanding how the two work together and support each other. That's right. You know, without a race analysis, our movements risk becoming racist. But without a class analysis, our movements are drained of any radical revolutionary potential for transforming the entire society. Yep. And I really think that's the point that Kelly is trying to make here. Exactly. And this comes back to a critique of neoliberalism that we've already made several times on this podcast, which is, what happens in a neoliberal capitalist culture to radical movements like the Black Panther Party, like Black Lives Matter and other radical movements, they either get destroyed if they remain anti-capitalist and start building class solidarity across different races, or they get commodified and co-opted by the ruling elite, by capitalism itself. And in this case, I think we can safely say that critical race theory has become co-opted and commodified by institutions of higher learning, government funding, and the like that strip away the capitalist critique and instead leave us with some kind of shallow racial identity politics. And when this kind of politics is not firmly grounded in class solidarity, it quickly becomes a weapon of racial culture wars and in turn, is weaponized to further divide and polarize society into these warring adversaries of left versus right instead of top versus bottom. And of course, the ruling class loves that. That's exactly what they want. Oh, it entirely is. And you know, that's what Du Bois was writing about. Yep. And I think, you know, analysis like Du Bois and Kelly, they, they give me hope that you know, there's still a solid class-based analysis out there. I think people really need to listen to that. You know, we need to fight the inequality and the capitalist system that thrives on this inequality. Absolutely. You know, other than like Vivek Chibber and Robin D.G. Kelly and uh, William Robinson, you know, who are some other modern day movement leaders that we should be following? Crawdads? Well, it's an important question that you ask, Taters, because obviously we're not going to get these perspectives in the mainstream media. And you might not even get them in the alternative media if you don't know who to look for. So um, I've kind of put together just a short list of people that I've been reading in the last couple of years. And, um, and both all of these people that I'm going to mention center both race and class in their political analyses. And these are just a few, I'm sure there are more, but the people who I've been kind of paying attention to are Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who is a you know, very foundational, um, well-respected abolitionist. Um, Kianga Yamada Taylor, who's an amazing journalist, professor, and author. Mark Lamont Hill, who's a journalist, professor, activist, abolitionist. Robin D.G. Kelly, of course, professor, author, and activist. Derricka Purnell, legal scholar, activist, abolitionist. She does a lot of writing with the Movement for Black Lives. And of course, Nick Estes, uh, who's the revolutionary Lakota indigenous activist and professor. Those are just a few of my favorites. Yeah, I think those are all great people. 
us to follow and read. Um, and then I also want to point out, you know, in the past, we have all these great movement leaders from the 60s and 70s. You've kind of mentioned some of them before. Mm -hmm. They were talking about race and class decades ago. We have you know, the Black Panther Party with Fred Hampton, Bobby Seale, Huey P. Newton, Asada Shakur, Angela Davis, other activists like Fannie Lou Hamer and Martin Luther King Jr., Cedric Robinson, and Malcolm X. Yes. Looking at your list, Crawdads, I noticed there's a lot of abolitionists there. Yes. And I know we're planning on talking more about abolitionists in future episodes. Yeah, yeah, we will for sure. And I guess I, I think what's just worth mentioning here is that um, police and prison, prison abolitionist movements are inherently anti-capitalist because they have a basic understanding and framework that a carceral state inside of a racist for-profit economy will always rely on caging and oppressing black and brown bodies for profit. So the link between race and class is undeniable in, inside the abolition movement. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, Michelle Alexander. She's right. another important totally. person to follow. Totally. You know, her book, The New Jim Crow, really describes how the capitalist system turned from slavery to a new form of prison slavery. Exactly. Yeah, right. you're right. She's foundational. We'll add her to that list for the reading notes. Yeah, let's kind of close off this episode here with a couple of clips from some of those people that you just mentioned. Okay. Um, these people, you know, they really give us hope for a better future, a future without capitalism, without racism. Yes. Um, here's a clip from Kianga Yamada-Taylor, African-American studies professor at Princeton and author of many articles and books, including her award-winning book, Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. But there is a basic inability of capitalism to meet the needs of anyone who has to work for a living. There's a way in which oppression compounds that. So women, black women, queer people, immigrants always suffer more within our society. But on the whole, there are very few people who actually benefit from the arrangement of capitalism and to what benefits may accrue to ordinary white people, white working class people. The benefits that accrue at the top vastly outweigh it, which to me is always the basis then upon making calls for solidarity. So I think the fact that a hundred years of public policy has yet to produce any that have significantly for any duration of time produced meaningful change in the lives of black people that have not required riots or prolonged social movements and struggles to recapture again and again speaks to the absolute inability of capitalism to solve these problems. She is so articulate. I just love Kianga Yamada-Taylor. <sighs> so many good thinkers we just need to point people i just feel like they just need to be more well known you know and yeah I, I wish people were listening to them instead of the nightly news you know nbc and cnn and fox like I know. we don't we don't get them that, that perspective at all from the mainstream media nope we have such brilliant minds and they're just like no airtime whatsoever <laughs> unless you know where to go um, okay, so anyway, this is Nick Estes, a member of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe and assistant professor in the American Studies Department. 
at the University of New Mexico and co-founder of the revolutionary indigenous group, The Red Nation. Also author of the seminal book, Our History is the Future about Standing Rock. And in fact, the things that we need, the things that black people need, everybody needs, right? It's a mm -hmm. class politics. And I think that's what makes uh, a lot of people afraid. It's because in this kind of world of identitarian politics, we have to distinguish ourselves um, to such a point where it's like, you know, that like we have to be unique and we have to be this and this. And it's like, actually, um, you know, that's an important, you know, individuality is important, but the culture of individualism mm -hmm. uh, is against the collective and it's against the projects uh, that we're working for. Uh, and I would say that U.S. exceptionalism actually holds a lot of indigenous uh, movements and indigenous thinking back. Yeah, that was really beautiful. You know, I know both of us have just started reading the uh, Red Deal. And yes, it's really so amazing. So amazing. Yeah, there's. I think it's really important that we recognize that you know it's not about individuality so much as about you know progressing for the collective good. That's right. It's a collective struggle, and mm -hmm. that's exactly what we're talking about. That gets stripped out of all of these neoliberal uh, frameworks. Yeah, I mean, I know we could keep on talking about this forever, but um, is there, I guess, anything you want to say in closing here as we wrap up this episode, Crawdads? Um, I guess I would just say that my hope is that as our social movements grow in the United States, I hope they become increasingly, increasingly aware of this kind of capitalist co-optation and control, and that you know, as organizers, we develop a much more solid class analysis within these movements that protects them against this co-optation and remains accountable to the social and material conditions of the people that these movements claim to represent. And speaking of making our movements representative and international, building movements based on class solidarity really seems like the only way to grow an international resistance to fascism as well. How about you, final thoughts, Taters? I think you really pretty well covered it there. You know, maybe we could sing Solidarity Forever, but I don't, <laughs> I don't really want to sing. So let's, uh, let's cut to the credits. Okay. Thanks so much for listening to Crawdads and Taters. If you like this kind of non-corporate independent analysis, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And please consider becoming a monthly subscriber at patreon.com slash crawdads and taters. Because even though we're anti-capitalists, we still have to eat and pay bills. Even the smallest monthly donation allows us to continue. And remember, always be anti-fascist. And anti-brunchin. Crawdads and Taters is a self-produced and directed production by Aaron McCarley and Burian Sundahl. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Oh, but he ain't none of mine. Uh -huh.